Welcome to the Danny Picard Show, Wednesday, April 6th, 2016. As always, broadcasting from the Beantown Athletics Studio in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Beantown Athletics, your only source for customized screen printing and embroidery. Go to BeantownAthletics.com right now. That's BeantownAthletics.com. Or give them a call at 617-282-4181. That's 617-282-4181. And make sure you tell them I sent you. And I hope you have purchased your David Ortiz Farewell Tour t-shirt. One-of-a-kind t-shirt. They sell them right here at Beantown Athletics. I gave you a little picture and video of that t-shirt on my Instagram account. So make sure you follow me at Danny Picard. Because yesterday, on opening day, David Ortiz, in his final opening day, hit a home run. And it was a big one. It was late in this game. It, it gave the Red Sox a 6-2 lead. When they were winning 4-2, Craig Kimbrell was warming up, and then David Ortiz hits the home run. They still brought in Kimbrell for the ninth. It was not a safe situation. I'm glad they brought Kimbrell in. Kimbrell was filthy. He was nasty. He was as advertised, and the Red Sox go on to win this one against the Indians on opening day in Cleveland yesterday by a score of 6-2. I come into the studio today, onto this show today, Much like I went on WEI last night, 93.7 FM here in Boston, I come into this show like I did last night with mixed emotions. Mixed emotions. I was very excited yesterday. I was all jacked up yesterday afternoon, late afternoon, when the Red Sox win this game, and it's exactly how you would draw it up if you're the Red Sox winning this season opener because you got a phenomenal performance from your new ace, David Price, Six innings, allowed only five hits, uh, two runs that came in that fourth inning. He was able to get out of that jam. He got out of a couple jams in the second and again in the fourth inning. But David Price, outside of that, as advertised, uh, 10 strikeouts, walked two batters through 103 pitches. Price was nasty yesterday in 30-degree weather in Cleveland. Uh, You get a great performance from your bullpen, Tazawa to Uihara in the eighth, to Craig Kimbrell, your new closer, making his Red Sox debut in the ninth. You get a home run from Mookie Betts, leading off, going two for five. You get a home run from David Ortiz. You got some some hustle out of Hanley Ramirez yesterday. I know he did not hustle on the hit he had to right field late in the game that, let's be honest, in the month of June... Maybe even in the month of May, that's a home run. And Hanley probably should have got a double out of that. He only got a single because he was pimping it. He was watching it. He was walking to first base out of the batter's box. I'm, I'm going to give him a free pass for a couple reasons. I told you last night. One, it was just a week ago that Hanley was hitting balls like that to the opposite field. And they were going out. And they were ending up in the sixth row. Because it was much warmer in spring training. So... He's still used to hitting the ball like that, and that ball ended up in the seats. It's the first game of the season. It's back in cold weather. The other reason I give him a free pass is because outside of that one play yesterday, Hanley was hustling all over the place. At first base, there was a play in which David Price, it was a ground ball. Price was rushing a first. Hanley had a decision to make. And I've been very concerned about Hanley making these types of decisions. But instead of tossing an underhand throw to David Price, maybe in an awkward spot, you know what he did? He took the ball at first, he put his head down, and he sprinted to first base to get the out in a way that I just didn't think Hanley Ramirez could sprint. And if he could, I didn't think he would sprint like that. But he also, earlier in this game, decided to go from first to third on a Travis Shaw single to right field, which showed me an awful lot of hustle. And then Hanley Ramirez ended up scoring from third. I I really liked what I saw out of Hanley yesterday. I, I liked the fact that he was energetic. I liked his attitude. I liked the hustle, even though he didn't hustle out of the batter's box on that one play. But all, all in all, all things considered, when you look at this Red Sox win yesterday on opening day, 
This is exactly how you would draw it up if you're the Red Sox. This is exactly why you went out and got David Price, who was what I tweeted yesterday, and I will call the rest of the season, a breath of fresh air. And then you saw how filthy Craig Kimbrell was in the ninth inning, even though it was not a save situation. I love that you stuck with him and and threw him out there, let him make his debut. There's a little less pressure because David Ortiz puts that ball in the seats late in this game in the ninth inning with his ninth inning home run. Uh, The Red Sox, a great win yesterday. I'm not handing him a championship this afternoon. I didn't hand him a championship last night, so don't overreact to any praise that I'm going to give this team, but I don't see how you could complain at all about what you saw yesterday in Cleveland from this Red Sox team. I don't know how you could complain. I I really don't know how. If you want to look at it, you know, one thing that maybe wasn't great was Blake Swihart going a second on that one play. Looks like he missed a sign. Like, Blake Swihart is not getting the, the straight-up steal sign, and he and he went that route um, with Jackie Bradley Jr. up. You know, if you want to talk about a miscommunication there, you're being extremely picky and extremely pessimistic, and I think that's uncalled for based on everything else that went right for this Red Sox team yesterday. So, I'm not handing him a championship, but I will look at this Red Sox win on opening day yesterday, and I will be excited about this. I will. Uh, So, uh, you know, last night on WEI, I got some calls, people telling me, you know, I was overreacting to one win. But I'm not not saying they're going to win the championship. But they made moves to, to improve in the areas that they needed the improvements the most. And you got exactly that out of David Price yesterday. And you got exactly that out of your new closet in Craig Kimbrell. And then the kids that I told you were taking another step in their careers with another major league season, like Mookie Betts, who was the leadoff man for this team yesterday, went two for five with two RBI, a run scored, a home run in this game in the third inning to give the Red Sox a 2 nothing lead. He smashed that ball to left field. I mean... I- I honestly don't know what more you could ask for out of this Red Sox team, so I'm very excited about that. I was very jacked up yesterday, and I'm still jacked up today, about how this thing went down. But I say mixed emotions today because then after the Red Sox won yesterday, we had to watch this Bruins game last night. And we all called it a must-win. They're at home. They're playing against a team that is not going to the playoffs in the Carolina Hurricanes. A Carolina Hurricanes team that became sellers at the deadline. They sold Eric Stahl. They sold John Michael Lyles to the Bruins. They gave Stahl to the Rangers. This is not a Carolina Hurricanes team that's going for anything this year. And, I mean, maybe they play a little bit looser in a game like this than the Bruins do. I don't know. But you're in your own building. It's the month of April. You got, you know, going into this game... You know, you got three games left in the schedule. You know you're out of a playoff race, but you know you can get back in it. And you know you want to try to control your own destiny. So you got to win this game last night against a team you should be. And they lose in a shootout. Now, they get a point, which could end up being a big point. Because as of right now, with that point that they got by just going to overtime and losing in a shootout, the Bruins, with two games left in the schedule, have 91 points. That's the same amount of points as the Detroit Red Wings. That's the same amount of points as the Philadelphia Flyers. And the Bruins are in a playoff race with both of those teams. Now, the race with Detroit is in the Atlantic Division. Okay? But Detroit has played one less game than the Bruins. The race with Philly is in the wild card. But Philly has played two less games than the Bruins. All right? So... The big game right now for the Bees is a game tonight on Wednesday night that they're not playing in because the Detroit Red Wings host the Philadelphia Flyers tonight. And I told you last night on WEEI, I said, I think we just need to let the wild card go because the Bruins play Detroit tomorrow night, Thursday night at the TD Garden. And what you want in that game is you want Detroit to have the same number of points as you in that game tomorrow night. And the only way that happens is if Philly beats Detroit tonight in regulation. So I will be rooting for the Flyers tonight to beat the Red Wings 
in regulation. That's what I'm rooting for. That's what you should be rooting for, too, if you're a Bruins fan. And if that can happen, then the Bruins all of a sudden are in position where maybe you can look at this Hurricanes game and say, all right, uh, that's a, it's a breakfast ball, right? It's a, it's a mulligan. We'll, we'll move on to the next game. Because at this point, that's what you have to do. Now you need some help, though, now. Right? You need help from Philly. And if you get that help tonight, if the Flyers can beat Detroit in regulation, you go into tomorrow night's game with the same amount of points as Detroit, with the same amount of games played as Detroit, and you have a chance to beat them and, you know, so basically, is it control your own destiny at that point? We'll see. I mean, you got to do it in, again, you got to do it in regulation, right? You need that, that because that regulation wins is a big tiebreaker now because Detroit has more regulation wins than the Bruins by one, I believe, if I have my stats correct. Um, but you need Philadelphia. You need help from Philly tonight. And, and the reason you need help from Philly is because you could not get the job done last night against Carolina and you lose in a shootout. And there are a lot of people last night and even today that are up in arms with what Claude Julien, the coach of the Bruins, did in the shootout because he did not go with Brad Marchand. He did not go with David Krejci. Now, the crazy thing is, you know, I consider Krejci a playmaker more than a goal scorer. All right, so I, I don't know how worked up I get about that. But there's no question. You need to go with Brad Marchand in the shootout last night. I mean, you have to go with him. It's arguably your best offensive player. And I don't even know if it's arguably. Now, you talk about Bergeron, but let's talk about goal scoring. Okay, Brad Marchand has had one heck of a season. The season, essentially on the line, you need two points. The fact that you would not go with Marchand in the shootout last night is, is, is kind of mind-boggling to me. It is. That said, the people who are upset with that, you're right to be upset because Claude Julien is wrong by not going with Marchand. He can talk about, in hindsight, all he wants. I think everybody was watching that going, where's Marchand? Why isn't Marchand shooting? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. You're right. And they only get one point. But if the Bruins do not make the playoffs, like if they don't get help from Philly tonight, or if the Bruins do get help and then they lose to Detroit tomorrow night, Thursday night, if the Bruins don't make the playoffs, I mean, I'm not going to be all worked up about one shootout and, the, and, and who didn't shoot and who did in the month of April. Because the biggest deal to me is, and I've said this now the last couple of days, it, this... The reason you find yourself in this situation is because of really, the, you know, you add up everything that happened for the entire 82-game season. And to just pinpoint one decision in a shootout in April, as big of a game as that was, you shouldn't even be in that situation. The reason you're in that situation is because your defense has been brutal all year long. Now, you only let up one goal in regulation last night. So maybe you can't blame it on the defense. The, the goal that Carolina scored in regulation that took a one nothing lead, that's on Tuca. It's a shot from the left point. It, that can't go in. That cannot go in. And, and I guess that goal, you know, I bet you Don Cherry was loving that goal because he's probably pounding his chest this morning with his brutal uh, suit coat that he probably has on. And, you know, he's probably saying, see, I told you, Rask can't stop a beach ball. Now, if you've listened to me, you know, I've defended Rask many times. But at the same time, I'll look at this goal last night from the Hurricanes in regulation, that shot from the left point. Tuke has got to stop that. He's got to stop it. Now, most of the season... It, it, it has not been about the goaltender, in my opinion. It's been about the defense, and that's the biggest problem, and that's why I have a tough time looking at this Bruins season. If they don't make the playoffs, I don't think I'm going to – I'm not going to sit here and get into the shootout order in, in one single game in April. It, you, to me, it's looking at the big picture and looking at why you were even in that situation in the first place, and it's because your defense has been horrible all year long. So the Bruins – Look, mixed emotions. Red Sox get a big win. Then the Bruins have a terrible loss and a shootout. I guess if, if you want to take anything from that positive, they did get a point, which means they have the same amount of points now as Philly and Detroit. But now you're looking at tiebreakers, and you're also looking at, you know, you need a little bit more help than you would have if you won that game last night. 
and also won it in regulation. Okay? Won it in regulation. Now, the Bruins, they have called up Max Talbot on an emergency basis, and this is essentially, you know, bring up your veteran who's been there before to see if uh, it's that veteran leadership that maybe can get this team a big win against Detroit tomorrow night and then another win in their final game of the season. But, uh, man, that was that was tough to watch last night, and, and it was tough to stomach, especially it when, when you're feeling as good as we all felt about the Red Sox. We needed that yesterday with this Red Sox team, didn't we? You know, you, you're waking up the last couple days. There's snow on the ground. It's 25 degrees here in Boston. You got to scrape the ice off your car for a couple days. I mean, it's pretty depressing here in, in the month of April. So you want regular season baseball. I have told you just how badly I've been waiting for a meaningful game to sit here and break down. And, you know, the Red Sox get into this one yesterday, and David Price right from the get-go, was just filthy, was nasty. Ten strikeouts in this game. And he was, this is what's so good about David Price's start yesterday. And I, I said it last night, I was telling people today in Beantown how I felt about it uh, at Beantown Athletics. We were talking about this game. Everybody in his all jacked up about how good the Red Sox looked yesterday and how good David Price looked. And I said, hey, David Price, he was nasty yesterday. Ten strikeouts. And he didn't even have his best stuff. He didn't. He didn't have his best stuff. He's throwing 91, but it was 91 with some pop, right? It was, that was a good 91 yesterday. I don't say that a lot, but that was a good 91. It was a hard 91, had some pop to it. And I think if David Price could look at one pitch that he threw yesterday and say, ah, you know what? This pitch got me in some trouble. He would say his cutter, you know, his cutter coming in at 87, 88, and it was flat. And it's like, he was missing his spots with it. He was putting that thing over the plate. In fact, there were a couple times that that I think the Indians could have made him pay for that cutter over the plate uh, more than they actually did. Now, Price got himself in some trouble in the second inning. He also got himself in some trouble in the fourth when he let up two runs. But the good thing about both of those innings being in trouble is he got out of those innings with strikeouts. And he minimized the damage with strikeouts, both in the second and the fourth inning. Now, did he get some help from the home plate umpire who had a very big strike zone when it comes to the outside of the plate, especially with right-handed hitters yesterday? Yes, he did get some help. But so did Cleveland at times yesterday. I think if there's one thing you want to say about the umpire, sure, he had a big strike zone on the outside to right-handed hitters, but he was consistent with it. Let's be, let's be honest. He was consistent. Just ask Mike Napoli, who <laughs> went down with that outside pitch a couple times. Yesterday, but David Price, he didn't even have his best stuff yesterday, and he was a breath of fresh air. And what you're going to see now with David Price this season, all season long, is something that we haven't seen now in a couple years, since 2013, which is having a starter that's going to be so dominant, I think, that we're going to have so much confidence in every single time he steps on the mound, right? This organization was missing that. And I told you all offseason, I wanted to see them go out and get that guy. And, and credit to the Red Sox, Dave Dombrowski, Mike Hazen, they, on a piece of paper, wrote down their biggest needs, and they attacked. And they went out and they acquired those guys to fulfill those needs in their race in David Price and also in their closet in Craig Kimbrell, who came in the ninth. And uh, 96, 97 mile per hour fastball. He's got this little slider curve that's at 86, 87. It looks like a wiffle ball pitch. I think, you know, there was a little wildness to Kimbrell yesterday. But you see what he is. He's fastball mid to upper 90s. He keeps it down in the zone. He's got that secondary pitch. Uh, He's filthy. And I think you saw a glimpse of that yesterday. Again, there was some control issues at times, but I think he was... So jacked up. It was his Red Sox debut. It was opening day. Uh, you know, he's sometimes thrown out of his shoes. It's fine. It's not going to be like that all year. But even if it is like that all year, he even showed you when he is like that, he's still pretty filthy. And he got the job done yesterday in the ninth. And the Red Sox as a whole, this whole team, uh, they showed up yesterday. And now they will play tonight at 6-10. First pitch at 6-10. Clay Buckholtz is on the mound for the Red Sox. He will go up against Indians righty Carlos Carrasco. Clay Buckholtz has not pitched in a regular season game since, what, July 10th. 
of last year. And the injury stuff, we know it's a concern with Buck Holtz. But when he is healthy, let's face it, Buck Holtz, especially early in the season, has been pretty damn good. So we'll see what he can do tonight against Cleveland. Carrasco, he last year won 14 games and struck out 216 batters in 183 innings. There are a lot of people looking at Carrasco thinking maybe he takes that next step and is involved in the Cy Young race in the American League. We'll see. But uh, what this Red Sox lineup, I think, also showed you yesterday is that this is not going to be an easy lineup right from the beginning. Mookie Betts, he's a superstar. You see it at the plate with that home run yesterday. You see it in the field. You're going right to Pedroia, who, if he can stay healthy, I'm convinced is going to have a huge year. Then you go to Bogarts hitting third. He went 0 for 5 yesterday with a strikeout, but come on. He hit 320 last year. And if you look at how this kid has improved defensively at the shortstop position, I am also going to tell you, like Mookie Betts, that Xander Bogarts, who is also in diapers, is going to be a superstar as well. And then you got big poppy David Ortiz, who went 2 for 4 yesterday, hit that two-run shot in the ninth inning. And uh, he did not strike out once in this game. He also walked. This Big Poppy, it's his last year. The team's motivated for him. I'm sure he's looking to have a great season to finish out his career. I, I think Ortiz is, is going to have a great year. And then you get to Hanley Ramirez. Two for four, a run scored. Uh, he did walk as well. He struck out once. He showed some hustle running the bases. I liked his base running yesterday. And, uh, yeah, he, he sort of pimped that ball off the top of the wall to right field late in this game. But I'm going to give him a free pass on that for now. You know, if he's doing that in, in May in a, in a one run, when they're trailing by one run or in a tie ball game in the eighth and the ninth inning, then we got problems. But yesterday, you know, look, it happened. I'm giving him the free pass. I already told you why. I'm not going to give him the free pass every time, but I gave it to him yesterday. So uh, you obviously did not go with. Pablo Sandoval, you went with Travis Shaw at third base. Two for five, run scored. Uh, he struck out three times. He was one of these guys that was frustrated with the strike zone yesterday as well, Travis Shaw. But um, what do you, he had the first hit, I think, for the Red Sox. First hit, right, of the 2016 Red Sox season goes to Travis Shaw. If, if, I'm, if my numbers and memory is correct with that, Brock Holt also started in left field. He went two for five uh, with an RBI. He struck out once. And Jackie Bradley Jr., we know about his defense in center field. I think if he can just play, honestly, average offense, sets the table for the, for the top of the order again as the number nine hitter and plays tremendous defense, this lineup is not going to be one of these lineups that you know other teams look at and roll their eyes. I, I mean, look, the Red Sox the last two years have not been a team that other pitches have been scared to face. And they've not been a team, they, you know, the Red Sox has not been a team that other hitters are scared to face with the Red Sox pitching staff. Like, nobody has been scared to play the Red Sox. But I will say this. If they can play anywhere close to how they played yesterday for most of the season, and if you can get some production out of guys like Porcello and Kelly and Buckholtz out of this rotation, you get Eduardo Rodriguez back, this is going to be a Red Sox team that, once again, teams around the league really do not want to play. I tell you right now, I don't think that's an overreaction to one game. I think that's based on facts. I think that's based on uh, the moves that we saw the Red Sox make to make the necessary improvements. They made them. I don't know what else people want them to do. I, I really don't. Like, how many more major moves do you want to see them make? And to that conversation, they could make a major move before the deadline to get another stud pitcher, but also some of the major moves they could make that could really help this team in, you know, the second month of the season could come just with their own young talent coming off the DL. Eduardo Rodriguez, who I think is going to be a stud, who's a power pitcher throwing in the mid-90s. Christian Vasquez, who I think is going to steal the everyday catching position from Blake Swihart when he gets healthy, and it could be soon, as he continues to recover from Tommy John surgery. How about Brandon Workman at some point? Are we going to see him again? Uh, I've raved about Workman and his job out of the pen back in 2013 in the postseason. I think he was one of the unsung heroes for that championship Red Sox team. 
So those are just a couple of the guys that we're talking about could come off the DL and, and, and give you something. And don't forget about Carson Smith out of the bullpen. Because if there is maybe one negative thing that I look at yesterday, and, and I'm being careful with this because I don't want to get negative on you. I think it was a great day for the Red Sox. I think it was a great day for, for the people like us who, who, who root for this team and live and die with this team. But the one negative, if you really want to look at something that happened and try to envision what that's going to be like for the rest of the season, I have major concerns about Koji Uehara. I do. Now, he came in for the eighth inning. You know, Price went six innings strong. Tazawa came in for a clean seventh through 12 pitches, struck out two guys. Tazawa had a nasty breaking ball yesterday. But then you throw Uihara out for the eighth. Used to be the closer of his team. But the one thing we've seen from Koji, who's what, 40, 41 years old now? The one thing we've seen from him the last couple years is that the velocity on his pitches is down a couple miles per hour. And I know it's nothing crazy. It's not a like a five-mile-per-hour difference. It's like one or two, sometimes three. I understand you're never really asking Koji to be a power pitcher anyway, so you're probably saying, well, Danny, how does that, how does that make a difference? How does that matter with someone like Koji, who you're asking uh, to throw a splitter down and away to lefties, and even to righties, it's unhittable, Right? And mix in a fastball every once in a while just to, to keep him off balance. And it doesn't matter how hard that fastball is because the splitter is so nasty and falls off the table down and away to lefties or, or however you want to throw it to righties. Um, you know, it just, how does that, how does the velocity matter with Koji? Well, I'll tell you how. Because if you go back and go back and, and maybe entertain me with this and, and Maybe you'll disagree, maybe you won't. I don't know how you could. If you go back to 2013 and you watch Koji Uihara when when he took over that spot, when he took over that position, and he dominated, right? And even into, you know, 2014, the velocity was fastball 88-89. And the splitter was, what, 80-81, sometimes 82. It was filthy. But when you have that velocity on it, there's a little bit more movement on that pitch. That's at least what I've seen. Now, late last year, Koji was injured, obviously. He was banged up. Um, but when he wasn't, the velocity was down. And it was a concern to me. I, I expressed that concern a lot last year. Yesterday, Koji was good. He had one strikeout. It was a clean eighth inning. He only threw 12 pitches. The splitter was working. He mixed it up with the fastball, and he really confused a couple hitters with that pitch. But the velocity was down, same as it was last year at time. Velocity was 86-mile-per-hour fastball. The splitter was like 78. I do think that makes a difference. Go back and look at the movement on those pitches a couple years ago. The, the, the movement's different with, with him. And, and it was a concern to me last year. It's, it's a concern for me right now because I saw a lot of people saying, oh, Koji's back, nasty movement. Well, it was good. It's good movement, good pitching, good inning in the eighth. Eh, you know, I don't, I don't know what that's going to look like all year. I'll be honest with you. I don't. And, um, you know, I, I, that's why when they went out and they got Craig Kimbrell, I told you maybe you entertain the idea of trading a Koji Uihara because you went out and acquired a Carson Smith. Now, I know it looks good now because Carson Smith hurt. But if he does come back and you're expecting Smith to be back and be back for the rest of the season... You know, I, I, I think Carson Smith and Tazawa are probably your guys. You know, if you get six innings out of one of your starters, I think this I think the game then looks like Tazawa Smith Kimbrell. Or maybe Smith Tazawa Kimbrell. Not necessarily Koji. But um it, right now, you know, it's one little thing. I don't I don't mean to make it out to be this huge deal. It's one thing I noticed. If you're asking me, all right, Danny, you gave us all these positives for this Red Sox team. What's something that maybe you're a little concerned about yesterday that you saw in this one game? It would be Koji, you know, a guy who we're not necessarily asking to bring the heat. I'm not saying that, but I do think the the velocity being down a little bit last year and even now this year, at least in one game, is uh, it does make a difference. It does make a difference in, in what Koji's trying to do out there, and I think it will, and it might not be a might not be a positive difference. So, 
it's something to keep an eye out for. But it's, again, it's not anything. I mean, he got the job done, right? He got the job done. So you got to look at that. Now, the question marks remain with the rest of this rotation. And we just got to let it play out. We, we all have the same questions. We all have the same concerns. Buck Colts today. Joe Kelly tomorrow night. Rick Porcello Friday night in Toronto against Marcus Stroman. And that's going to be a big one. And then you got Stephen Wright, the knuckleballer, on Saturday afternoon in Toronto, 1 o'clock, against another knuckleballer, R.A. Dickey. That should be pretty cool, actually. Um, setting us up for David Price once again, Sunday afternoon in Toronto against Marco Estrada. Now, speaking of the Blue Jays, who the Red Sox play this weekend, as I take a look around Major League Baseball here in the first couple days of the regular season, uh, we had some drama last night. We had some drama in Major League Baseball last night. I went over on this show some of the rule changes they have for this season. And one of the bigger rule changes was how you slide. Like, how are you going to slide and what's legal? What's a legal slide and what's not a legal slide? The reason they changed this rule is because of Chase Utley's brutal slide last year in the playoffs, in the divisional series. Remember Chase Utley? He went hot into second base. He took the kid from the Mets out, and, and that was it. His season was over, playoffs over, banged up his knee, and it was a dirty slide. Like, there are a lot of slides in Major League Baseball, breakup slides, that I accept. I say, hey, it's part of the game. Like, I'm there. I'm right there with you. There's contact, break up a double play. It's part of the game. Let, let it happen. Why are you trying to prevent that? Well, there are those slides that we say are part of the game in which there's contact. There are other slides, like Chase Utley's in the playoffs last year, that were pretty dirty. Like, Chase Utley didn't start sliding until his ass was on the bag. Right? I mean, that was a dirty slide. That can't happen. So, you look at that Utley play, the league wanted to put their foot down and say, all right, we need a little bit more protection for whoever is covering second base there on double plays and breakup slides. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to tell you how you can slide into second. We're going to tell you how you slide into bases. You got to, you know, it's got to be in, in the base path. You got to drop down for the slide before you get to the bag. And, you know, you have to make an attempt to touch the base, not make an attempt to touch to touch the fielder who's trying to uh, get to, trying to turn to. And, you know, it's reviewable. And you know I don't like review. I don't like review in Major League Baseball. I've said that many times. You can go back to the archives, my podcast in like 2007, where we, oh, 2006, 2007, maybe even 2008, whenever it was, years ago, when we talked about replay for home runs in baseball. And... I, I said it then, and I was right on the money when I said this is not going to stop at replay for home runs. Because once you start getting replay for home runs, then you're going to get people complaining about other things and saying, well, hey, if you can review for home runs, why can't you review for this? Why can't you review for that? If you're trying to get the game right and the call's right, let's start reviewing everything. And here we are in 2016, and we're essentially reviewing everything or most things. And I don't like it one bit. But rules are the rules. And if we're going to accept those rules, which we have to, because what are we going to do? Uh, pick it outside of Major League Baseball stadiums. I don't know why you'd do that. That would be stupid. Watch the game. Enjoy the game. Love the game. I do love the game. And we just accept the rules. We accept the review, even though you don't, I don't like it. And uh, the new slide rules, okay. Well, last night, Toronto and Tampa Bay. In Tampa Bay, let me set the scene for you. Let me set the scene for you last night in Tampa Bay. Ninth inning, top of the ninth, Toronto is up. Bases are loaded, one out. I believe it was Encarnacion, ground ball to third base. Tampa Bay, by the way, is winning this game 3-2 to two in the top of the ninth in Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay's winning 3-2. Bases loaded, one out. Toronto, it's a ground ball to third base. So we're going 5-4-3 double play attempt to end the game. They get the out at second. The guy at second who's going to make the exchange and throw to first for the, for the game ending out, he throws it away from the first baseman to his left. It goes out of play or it goes by him. And guess what happens? They don't end the game. One run scores. Two runs score. The Blue Jays end up taking a 4-3 lead in the top of the ninth inning, what happens? All of a sudden, Kevin Cash, Ray's manager, comes out 
We got a dispute. We got a review. They review this. And when you watch the replay, Jose Bautista, who's sliding into second, slides in, but he takes his hand, his left hand, and he grabs the foot of the fielder who was making the throw to first base from second base. And that can't happen. Under the new rules, and you review it, it, it wasn't a very discreet, like we've seen guys try to break up double plays and they can be a little bit more discreet about it. This wasn't discreet. This was, he stuck his hand out and he legitimately grabs the guy's foot and tries to spin him around. Under the new rules, it can't happen. So what do the umpires do? They call it interference and they call the runner at first out. And that out is the third out, which means on the force, the double play, no run score, the raise of a 3-2 lead, and that's out number three in the top of the ninth in Tampa Bay, the game's over. The game ends. It turns into a game-ending interference call and gives the Rays a win. Gives the Rays a win. Now, this could be a huge win because if you see the AL East playing out the way I've seen it play out, then you see an AL East that's going to be a complete dogfight. Like, I see the AL East, I told you in my season predictions, um, on what, Friday I did those, I told you the Blue Jays win the division, but in a dogfight in which it looks like maybe the AL West looked last year. Like, Texas wins the division with 88 wins. You got Houston as a wild card. What did they have? 86 wins last year in the AL West. All right, and then you get the third-place team. Uh, here it is right here. Texas won the division, AL West with 88 wins. Houston at 86, get a wild card. And the Angels are on the outside looking in, but they were in the race till the end with 85 wins. Like, I can see the AL East looking like that this year with the Red Sox, the Blue Jays, and the Yankees. I can see that. And if that is the case, and a division and, and a playoff spot is going to be separated by one game, well, this game and that call, and ultimately that slide by Bautista under the new rules, who knows? That could cost Toronto a playoff spot, for all we know. So don't tell me games in April do not matter. They do. And we'll see. I mean, it's a long season. I'm not going to sit here and hop on that decision or that call or that slide every single day. But uh, I'm going to put it down in my notes. When we get to September, when we get closer to October, that one play and slide by Bautista, who knows? That could cost, and that call could cost Toronto a playoff spot. You never know. And um, because I think that's how close this division is going to be. Now, some people like Toronto's manager, John Gibbons, spoke out about this afterwards. He said, why don't you put dresses on us out there? <laughs> uh, he didn't like it. And I don't expect him to like it. He's an old school guy. And, and you know what? I'm an old school baseball guy. I don't want to see that be a game ending interference call and Toronto doesn't take a lead. But guess what? Rules are rules, and under the rules, we just have to accept them. I mean, I could sit here every day and, and argue about review and say they should have even review, reviewed that. If they saw that live and they wanted to call it live, call it live. They didn't. They reviewed it, saw it, and changed it. I mean, I hate that. But what am I going to do? Sit here every day and argue about reviews in baseball? I mean, that's not going to get rid of it. So I just sort of accept it. And when you accept it, hey, the rules are the rules. And what Bautista did under the new rule, under the new review, they saw something that goes against the rule. They got to call it that way. You got to call it that way. I know it's tough to stomach. The old school baseball fan in me doesn't want to see that call made. It doesn't want to see that play even reviewed. But this is the baseball world that we live in in 2016. And since we live in it and they do review that and they do rule that an illegal slide rules of rules and that's. That's game-ending interference, and it could cost the Blue Jays. And I know, it's early. We'll wait and see. But it, it could be a very close division, a very close wild card. Um, could end up being a tough call for Toronto if it is as close as I think it's going to be in September. So uh, that, wasn't the only, that wasn't the only base running issue we had yesterday. The Yankees also had one against the Astros. Now, this one wasn't, I, I shouldn't say it, well, it made a difference, but it wasn't a game-ending play. Uh, 
Correa was uh, hit a little dribbler to Batantis at the first baseline, and Correa decided to run up the first baseline on the inside part of it, like on the grass, clearly out of the baseline, but on the inside part of it. Given Batantis a very small window to make the throw at first and an awkward angle, the throw that he made, he puts it over the head, right? Puts it over the head of the first baseman. And they don't call any type of base running interference. So Joe Girardi comes out, and he's arguing, and he's saying, you know what, that should be an out, he's out of the baseline, this, that, the other thing. I look at it and think this. Batances still had a play to make, even though Correa was out of the baseline on the inside. Batances still had a play to make without throwing it, sailing it over the first baseman's head. He did. Now, the other thing is, and this is a quote from the umpire that Girardi was arguing with after the game, which is a great quote. He said, hey, you want me to make the call, guess what? Have Batances throw the ball where he's going to throw it, and if it hits the base runner, guess what? The base runner, we're going to call him out. Right? And basically shuts up Joe Girardi, yet Joe Girardi's going to protest this game. He's protesting because uh, the Yankees lose it yesterday uh, to the Houston Astros. But we got a couple base running situations, uh, but the one against Toronto, that's the one you know cost them the game and could cost them something bigger ultimately when it's all said and done. We'll have to wait and see for that. But, I mean, doesn't it make you feel good to get some, some baseball talk, some meaningful baseball in, right? Now we got it all the way up through the summer into the fall. So, you know, I love doing that. And, and not only do we have baseball, but we also have playoff races. I just told you about the Bruins playoff race and the Stanley Cup race. But don't forget about the NBA. And here in Boston, we're looking at the Celtics team. They did not play last night. They have five games left in the schedule. When you look at the NBA standings, if the playoffs began today, the Celtics are the number four seed in the East with 45 wins. They would play the Miami Heat, the five seed, in the first round. The Celtics are a half game behind the three seed Atlanta Hawks. And technically, the Celtics and the Heat have the same record at 45-32 and 32 and should be tied for the fourth seed. But right now, the Celtics, it looks like, hold that tiebreaker. And Charlotte is a full game behind both the Celtics and Miami. Uh, for that fourth and fifth seed. Charlotte is in the sixth seed in the East. So that's how the playoffs look. The Celtics, again, have five games left. They host New Orleans tonight. It's a game the Celtics should win. And they should win, I would think, uh, pretty easily. But you got a couple things going on. No Evan Turner. No Evan Turner tonight. Uh, he has, what, an eye abrasion? It looks nasty. It's like his whole eye is closed, it looked like, the other night in that game against the Lakers, that win against the Lakers in L.A. And uh, no Evan Turner. He's ruled out tonight. Avery Bradley did not play against the Lakers because of the birth of his second child, I believe. But he returned to practice yesterday. He will return and be in the starting lineup, we believe, tonight at the TD Garden against New Orleans. So the Celtics, five games left, and they should win this one tonight against the Pelicans. Now, Around the rest of the NBA, things are getting interesting in the Western Conference for Golden State and San Antonio because last night, Golden State blew a 17-point lead at home against the Minnesota Timberwolves and lost to the Timberwolves at home in overtime, 124-117. to uh, This is coming off... You know, Golden State on Friday night lost at home to the Celtics. The Celtics gave Golden State their first home loss of the season. And now Minnesota goes into Golden State and wins. And, and, and for anybody that wants to say, well, that's a bad look, that means, you know, you can't put too much stock on what the Celtics did. I don't think so. Minnesota, all right, they got 26 wins and 52 losses. They, they, they are literally 43 games out of first place behind Golden State. But the Timberwolves, if you watch them play and you see their talent, I think the Timberwolves are going to be a very exciting team, maybe as soon as next year. Carl Anthony Towns had, I, I was watching his post game on the court, and, um, 
you know, they were asking him about the win, and, and, and he didn't seem too excited. And they say, you know, are you holding the excitement in right now? Like, you just beat Golden State, gave him their second loss at home. They're th- Golden State 37-2 and two now. And you threw a wrench into Golden State's plans as they go for the regular season win record, which would be 73. Golden State's at 69 right now. To get to 73, Golden State has four games left. They have to win all four to get that record and, and you know, pass the Chicago Bulls. So they're asking Carl Anthony Towns. They say, you know, you don't seem too excited right now. Are you holding something in? And Carl Anthony Towns says, no, I mean, I'm not holding it in. It's exciting. But for us to be where we want to be as a team with the talent we have, you know, we need to start competing in these games. And, and we need to beat teams like Golden State. If we want to be taken seriously in this league, and if we want to put ourselves in position to next year, you know, be a playoff team. Like, if we want to be a great team, we have to win these games and expect to win these games and not act like we want a championship after we win them. I mean, it was great. And Kyle Anthony Towns, like, I watched that and I go, wow. Like, talk about maturity right there. Because that's a big win. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I'm sure he was excited. And I'm sure deep down inside... Winning that game in overtime the way they want it, trailing by 17 points in Golden State, throwing a wrench into their plans. Uh, it, that's a huge win for Minnesota. And you know they were jacked up. And for him to answer questions like that told me all I need to know about Kyle Anthony Towns. We know the talent he has. He's a stud. But the maturity level there as well is very impressive. And to the point where I look at that Minnesota roster, Wiggins, Towns, I mean, this is. This is going to be a very exciting team moving forward. And uh, it could be as soon as next year, honestly. Big win for that organization. Now, for Golden State, I mentioned they have four games left. And they got to win all four if they want to set this record and get to 73 wins. The four games they have left are against only two teams. San Antonio, two against San Antonio, and two against Memphis. Home and homes. Now, the first one is against the Spurs at Golden State tomorrow night, 10.30, set your clock, 10.30 tomorrow night on TNT, Spurs, Warriors. The question now is is with San Antonio, who has 65 wins, who has five, San Antonio has five games left, Golden State is four. San Antonio is in second place in the West. They are only three and a half games behind Golden State, and they play them twice. And... The question is coming up, what will San Antonio do? Because as of last week, let's say last week at this time, last Wednesday, I think a lot of us, including even some of their players, I read a quote from Tony Parker on his French radio show, and yes, he does have a French radio show, where he says his coach, Popovich, is what they're going to do is they're going to rest players because that's what Pop does. And I told you the same thing. I agreed. I said Pop's going to rest guys because Pop's going to do what Pop's going to do. He doesn't care about home court advantage. He cares about resting his big dogs, going into the playoffs, and even having to go in and win some road games with a rested team in order to win a championship. It's worked for him in the past. He thinks it's going to work again, and it very well could. And I don't hate the strategy, but the question now where I guess the one seed is... I don't know that I want to say realistic, but we'll say mathematically realistic with five games left, three and a half games behind Golden State. The question is, how do you handle this knowing you, as the Spurs, play Golden State two more times, right? Well, here's what I think is going to happen. I think the Spurs are going to play their guys tomorrow night. I think they go into this game tomorrow night, San Antonio, and I think they, they play the game as if it's a meaningful game, and they have a roster that, you know, will be their regular roster, and, and they're not going to hold back minutes on certain guys and, and use the word rest unless there's some type of blowout in that late in that game. I think that's how they're going to handle the first game. Now, the second game, well, we'll have to wait and see because if, you know, Golden State loses that game and then they lose the next one, and it looks like maybe Golden State's going to rest their guys, so it might get interested with San Antonio, but... I still think San Antonio, the fact that they have five games left, I think they probably play their guys against Golden State tomorrow night, and they rest them on Sunday at home. 
And I think they'll rest them from there on out against Golden State, against Oklahoma City, against Dallas. But I think maybe they get a couple games just to tune it up a little bit before they completely shut it down before the playoffs. Uh, And it might not have anything to do with Golden State or ruining their plans or even going for the one seed. It might have everything to do for San Antonio uh, for just maybe getting their top dogs another big game in them before the playoffs instead of sitting them for five games. And maybe that's it. That's how I think it's going to play out. Now, would I be surprised if Popovich doesn't play his starters against Golden State either of the games? No, I wouldn't be surprised because that's just what Pop does. But where there is this new scenario now, I think maybe it's likely you see the starters in at least the first game, probably not the second one. We'll see. Either way, these two teams, Golden State, San Antonio, I think they're going to be playing in the Western Conference Finals against each other. I think that matchup is inevitable. So when we get there, that's going to be an exciting one to break down. All right. So there's a look at the NBA playoff race against Spurs and the Warriors tomorrow night in Golden State, 1030 on TNT. Also this week, and I'll wrap up the show with this, we got the Masters. The Masters begins tomorrow at Augusta. Today is the par three contest. It's always good uh, to get the Masters going because, once again, it's one of those tournaments that, especially when we get some cold weather around here, you love watching love watching the tournament at Augusta, love watching that course. Uh, but it's also great to watch meaningful golf and major tournaments this time of year when we don't have great weather because it gets you in that summertime mindset. So I'll be paying attention to the Masters the next couple days, and we'll keep you updated on this show, you can get me five days a week, uh, whenever you want. I broadcast five days a week. You can listen to this show whenever you please. DannyPicard.com. Also, subscribe on iTunes. Also, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, anywhere podcasts are available. Don't forget, follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Facebook. Follow me on Instagram. Um, all forms of social media. You know, as we continue to roll along into the baseball season. I, I, for people who maybe don't list, haven't listened to me in the past, if, if you're asking me, well, are you, are you going to do baseball every single day? Probably. I mean, most likely. Like, to me, I am a baseball guy. I'm all in. And when it comes to breaking games down and analysis, like, I love digging into a game, digging into certain plays. And you know, especially with this Red Sox team, we're going to be digging into some things because... Again, the concern level with the rest of the rotation is a real thing, and I'm right there with you when it comes to, all right, what are we going to see tonight out of Clay Buckholz? Like, I don't know. I really don't know. What are we going to see tomorrow with Joe Kelly? I don't know. I really don't know. And what are we going to see with Rick Porcello? Who knows? And what are we going to see with a knuckleballer and Stephen Wright? How anybody would know that is beyond me. So we'll see how it plays out, and I will react to it. And uh, whatever happens in the playoff races, in baseball and in basketball, I will also react to that. Now, with football, people are still hot on this Greg Hardy story. He did this interview with Adam Schefter for ESPN yesterday. And uh, oh, he, I think they did it two days ago, right? Now, I just had the quotes on yesterday's podcast. Yesterday afternoon, you know, you get the audio and the video of it. And, I mean, I think that just goes to confirm what I told you on yesterday's podcast, how I feel about Greg Hardy, is that the guy's just a scumbag. I mean, and he's an idiot because he contradicts himself. You know, he says, well, you can't say I didn't do anything wrong, but at the same time, I'm innocent. Well, that doesn't make any fucking sense because it's one or the other. Either you did something wrong or you're innocent. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, yeah, I did something wrong, but I'm innocent in the same sentence. It just, it doesn't make any fucking sense. And on top of it all, I mean, we have the pictures, the bruises on this girl, and we have the pictures of the guns on the futon. I don't care maybe even if she did trip and fall on the futon on her own. Why the fuck do you have a bunch of guns on a futon at all? Especially when your girlfriend's in the room. I mean, what, what are you doing? The guy's a monster. He's a scumbag. And people are now trying to figure out 
what this interview was all about with Adam Schefter? Like, was this a favor from an, an, an NFL insider to, to get this out there, to sit down with him and maybe help Greg Hardy's cause when it comes to his free agency or his future in the NFL? Like, people are wondering if Adam Schefter did Greg Hardy and his agent a favor by doing this interview and letting Greg Hardy speak. There's a lot of people that said, why would you do this interview? You know, you should have just let it go. Leave this guy alone. Don't help this guy out. Um, I will say this. Adam Schefter, he gets this interview, and I'm sure he's thinking to himself, this is a big interview because everybody's going to watch. At the end of the day, when it comes to media and even reporters like this, you see it on Twitter. They're all battling to get the first breaking news bit. They're all battling to be that first guy with the story. And if you're a reporter and you're not going for the big one-on-one, or you're not going for the big story, you're probably not doing your job. So if Adam Schefter isn't accepting this, then he's, I'm going to say he's probably not doing his job. The one-on-one with Greg Hardy. However you feel about Greg Hardy, and it's probably the same way I feel, which is the guy's a scumbag, for somebody like Adam Schefter in his business, in his industry, where he's always trying to get the one-on-one, the exclusive, the top story, the breaking news, for him to turn that down, the business aspect of that would be a little ridiculous on his part if he would have turned that down, okay? But I will also say this. The idea that also in Adam Schefter's mind, the idea that he wasn't thinking this is going to be good for him to maybe get another scoop later on down the line, of course he was thinking that. Now, the first thing I thought of when I saw this was the TV series Ballers. It was on HBO, right? With The Rock. The Rock's in it. And, you know, you see how Jay Glazer does the interview with the Miami Dolphins wide receiver. And the Dolphins wide receiver, you know, they let him do the one-on-one and he, and he, and he talks about his issues and he opens up and they make him look good. But really, going into the interview, the kid had some controversy in his off-the-field stuff. Like, He was banging one of his teammates' mothers, right? And so they needed a story out there, maybe a sympathy story, maybe make him look a little better to the public than he was looking. I forget all the dirty details, but you have Jay Glazer, the sit-down exclusive one-on-one interview, and basically, you know, it's good. They say, hey, we'll get you back. Thanks for doing this, Jay. Uh, We'll get you back. Now, you know, Jay Glazer's just playing the role in this. It's a TV show. But I do also think that the industry, when it comes to these big-time insiders, and I'm not trying to call out Jay Glazer. I mean, I think Jay Glazer is great at what he does, but he's in that, he's in that role on the TV show that I think of, so I bring up his name. And when I, I saw that scene, I think of that scene when I see this Adam Schefter-Greg Hardy interview, and people are bringing up, well, was Adam Schefter doing this because he's looking for a scoop? Was he doing them a favor? To think that he wasn't doing them a favor... I think is is ridiculous. I think he was. I think in the back of his head, he's probably thinking, well, I could get a scoop here down the line. Uh, That said, again, I think it would be ridiculous if he turned down this interview. In his industry, his line of work, I mean, that's the interview that you go for, right? Like, I think Greg Hardy's a scumbag. But if he came to me, or somebody came to me and said he wants to sit down in the Beantown Athletic Studios and open up about this, what am I going to say? No? What am I going to say? No to that? I mean, that doesn't mean I have to agree with what he says. That doesn't mean I have to go out and maybe defend, uh, you know, him at any point. And I think maybe that's why, because Schefter does tweet out some things yesterday and say some things that make him sound somewhat sympathetic to Greg Hardy. And maybe that's why you hear some people going after Schefter. You know, the way I would handle it is, I'm, I, when I watched that interview, even if I was the one giving him the interview, I'm sorry, after the fact, there's no sympathy there. We've seen the pictures. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it, he basically said he did something wrong while saying he was innocent. He just sounds like an idiot. No sympathy for Greg Hardy. I, I, I ripped him yesterday. But then when you see the video yesterday afternoon, I mean, again, it just confirms my thoughts on Greg Hardy. The guy's, the guy's a scumbag. And you should be doing everything you can if you're the league to make sure you keep him out of the league. And that begins with the commissioner to wake up and smell the fucking coffee here. And, you know, he didn't do his job during the appeal when Roger Goodell could have sat in and heard that appeal. He chose not to. 
We know he can because he sat in for the deflate appeal, deflate gate appeal. So he already dropped the ball on this once. We know Goodell has dropped the ball on a couple domestic violence issues, and he should really step up to the plate and do everything he can to keep this guy, Greg Hardy, out of the league for good. So um, that's your NFL story of the day. Again, I'm here five days a week. DannyPicard.com, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, you name it. All forms of social media. Buckholtz on the mound tonight against Carrasco. I will break it down tomorrow along with this Celtics game against New Orleans. And we'll see what happens with Detroit and Philly in the NHL. Can Philly help out the Bruins by beating the Red Wings tonight? We'll see, and I'll react to it tomorrow. See ya!